0: Hi everyone, Súrge here. In our final replay of the week, we're bringing you an episode from last October, when the entire world was watching one particular Netflix show. So have you watched Squid Game yet? Chances are you've been asked this question a lot in the past few weeks. And it's also likely you're one of the 138 million people who have seen it worldwide. Squid Game. The Korean drama is officially Netflix's biggest original series launch. If you the idea of- for the show is pretty simple. 456 contestants take part in a series of Korean kids games in a bid to win a life-changing windfall of 45 billion won. That's about 33 million euro for us Europeans. The only problem is, if they lose the game, they die. At first glance, Squid Game seems like just another fight to the death story filled with gratuitous and extreme violence. But on closer inspection, it shines a light on the failings of capitalism and the stark inequalities that exist between rich and poor. Today we ask, why has a show about a South Korean death game become one of the most popular series of all time? And what does Squid Game actually teach us about class division, poverty and greed? So Patrick Frayne is a features writer with the Irish Times. Patrick, Squid Game has exploded onto our TV and laptop screens over the past few weeks and it's become Netflix's biggest ever series at launch. Could you start by telling us the basic premise of this survival thriller that has taken over so many of our lives? (laughs)
1: It's a very high concept show um, in which 456 people are gathered in a secret location to play these children's games. And if they win, they're in it with a chance of winning like millions and millions of of quid. And if they lose their shot in the head (laughs) very dramatically or they die in the course of the game very dramatically. Um, And it follows in... The track, there's a lot of, there's a history of kind of death game shows, like there's things like the Hunger Games film series, there was Battle Royale, you know, games in which, you know, people are made to play or volunteer to play, or Death Race 2000, which Roger Corman made in the 70s, uh, about a really violent road race. Um, So there's always been a kind of weird appeal in this kind of show because uh, the stakes are so high. But there is some very unique and cool things about this, I think, like I really enjoyed it.
0: I'm not sure i described describe my reaction to it in that way, but we'll come back to that. Um, you mentioned this genre of death game dramas. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and why you think it's so popular right now?
1: Um, so I, I always I love sci fi and horror and fantasy stuff anyway. And what I kind of love about them is on some level, they're always trying to talk about something else Mm -hmm. and these games, these death game kind of films tend to be about hyper competitive capitalism and they're very blunt metaphors about how the capitalist system works in terms of winners and losers in a very, very extreme way. And also, I just think the reason they're popular, the reason Hunger Games became so popular, and that was like for teenagers, really, mm. um, the reason Battle Royale was such a popular film back in 2000 is because the stakes are so high. You've got like characters that you, in various ways you grow attached to mm. and they could die at any moment <laughs> in a kind of horrible yeah. way, which is like there's I, I thought it was really funny when um, things like Big Brother started. I remember thinking, well, the logical end point to this is that they all have to fight to the death. And, and I remember Charlie Brooker actually wrote a TV show in which, like, there was loads of zombies introduced to the Big Brother house. And I and, and instantly I can feel you go, that sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so I think people like that kind of mix of competitiveness, this mix of kind of a fake kind of sport, plus some sort of countercultural political messaging, you know.
2: person standing here in this room is living on the brink of financial ruin.
1: You all have debts that you can't pay off.
0: So what can you tell us about the, the creator of this show and what do you think it is about his characters that draws us in so much?
1: So it's made by a guy called Hang Dong Hook. Um, he's a director and Script writer for a long time. He's written loads of films that we'd never that never kind of made it outside of Korea. Uh, there's something in the sensibility of what he does that's a little bit different from the others. Like the main character is uh, a guy called Gi-hun and he's a gambling addict and he's a kind of business failure. Who's living with his mother, kind of almost taking advantage of his mother? He's a really terrible dad. Like he's not a bad person, but he's not a great dad to his kind of estranged daughter. But what's really, really interesting is he manages to paint him as a really nice, kind man. And he's no good at the games. Like he kind of wins, he gets, he lasts through the series through a combination of luck and people responding to his kindness. And there's something very interesting in that. Uh the second thing he does really well is in the first two episodes in particular, any other of these high concept shows are either in a kind of parallel universe or they're in a kind of heightened reality from beginning to end, like Battle Royale. Whereas in the first two episodes of Squid Game, particularly weirdly in the second episode, um, they go back into the characters kind of real lives. They're, they're given permission to leave the game. So, there's a whole episode where you see six or seven of the characters' real life existences. And that's like something like M- by Mike Lee or something. It's this really gritty, realistic picture of indebtedness, poverty, and failure in Korea. And so sometimes when people go, Oh, my sci-fi show is actually a metaphor about capitalism. You go, yeah, right. It's actually an excuse to kill loads of people really, really violently. Mm. Um, and that's just a very, very thin metaphor you're using to justify it. Because of the way he grounds it in the first two episodes, you have a really clear understanding that whereas this is a really heightened dystopian kind of situation, the world they're coming from is the very, very real world of poverty and indebtedness, and therefore it actually has a lot more to say about the nature of inequality and power and how characters lack power over their own lives and how characters can be trapped into a situation um, where you suddenly start to empathise with and understand why characters take very, very insane decisions in the show.
0: And it isn't giving anything away to explain that in the very first episode, we learned that Squid Game is an actual Korean children's game.
2: In my town, we had a game called the Squid Game. We called it that because it's played in a court shaped like a
0: squid. Can you tell us a little bit more about the challenges that the contestants face through these childlike memories and and games that they once played?
1: So there's some really good devices like like all of the games have a horrible twist right of course
0: course. uh, (laughs) a death twist
1: they all have a death twist or sometimes they don't even have a death twist it's just if you lose a man in a red boiler suit with a horrible mask comes in and shoots you um there's some really good characters in it so and they all come from very different parts of kind of korean culture and korean life so there's an immigrant who uh, is working in kind of I guess almost underground conditions and he's living in horrible situation and then there's another character who's an older man with really bad health difficulties. So you get like interesting things in that the different characters either will never have seen the games before or have these really detailed kind of almost warm memories of playing the games as kids. So there's this interesting juxtaposition of like the nostalgia. Um, that the characters themselves and I'm guessing a lot of Korean people would have when they're watching it for the actual games and the reality of the game and the situation that's happening in. Like one of the interesting kind of tabloidy offshoots of this is that there's loads of scare stories where people are going, children are now playing the games from a squid game. And you feel like going, children were already playing the games from a squid game. They're children's <laughs> games. Stop having a moral panic about nothing. Um, It kind of en- brings a kind of creepiness into it. Like, because the characters as well, the main characters, a couple of them are quite childlike. Like Ji-hun, uh, one of his things is that he kind of, his face fills with joy. He's such a good actor. Like, even in the darkest situations, there's, there's games where they're playing marbles and things, and you see childlike glee in their faces, even though one of them is destined to die horrifically in, like, two minutes of screen time. So I think some of that stuff uh, works really, really well emotionally. Like, uh, it's also based very much in the fact that there's a huge culture of indebtedness in Korea. Like, it's one of the most... They've been on a kind of consistent upward swing since the 60s. So there's loads and loads of debt, and there's issues with debt. And um, Hong dong Yuk actually wrote this back in the noughties based on his family's own experiences of, of debt. And he says himself in interviews that he was pitching it as a film back in 2008, 2009, and no one was interested. And he said at the time that yeah, Korean people would have to be way more in debt before people would buy into this. And they are way more in debt, but also I think across the world, there's an issue with indebtedness. So that element, is a very kind of contemporary and new element as well. Is the fact that all the characters are there to win vast sums of money that they're largely going to use to pay off their debts.
0: You've mentioned the violence already, so let's be straight here. The show is very violent and it's not for the faint-hearted. Uh, so what do you think keeps us watching?
1: Well, there's a whole like philosophical thing about why people like violent TV and film in the first place. And I think there is a bit of ourselves that maybe is that primal bit that you need to see some <laughs> violence to stop you doing it yourself out in the streets. And, <laughs> not sure if that's true, <laughs> but um, there is, in this program, it, it when the violence happens, it's very real and it's very visceral. Um, it's not cartoonish. Mm. What's really interesting is that elements of the show look very cartoonish and, on purpose. So when you're in the heightened environment of the kind of game they have to play, um, it's all bright and primary coloured and kind of unreal looking. Um, When you're out in the real world, it's suddenly very muted and quite grim and, and realist. But when the violence happens, it is for the most part incredibly quick, incredibly gruesome and very real. And in the context of the cartoony environment, that actually makes it even more kind of grotesque. I think I wouldn't have watched this if the main character in particular wasn't so watchably a good person. And a lot of what you're watching in the show is you're worried that some of those characters are going to be corrupted.
0: So the director Hong Dong-Yok, he's described the show as an allegory or a fable about modern capitalist society and something that depicts the extreme competition of life. So real life. Do you think he's achieved that?
1: I think in the first two episodes in particular, which sold me on the show, um, particularly the second episode, you genuinely feel like he's trying to say something deeper. And uh, in certain episodes, it really comes across strongly and makes you feel like uh, you're not just watching ultraviolence for its own sake. I think there's an argument that at a certain point, it tips over into something that is more purely about entertainment, like gory entertainment, but entertainment. And, you know, you're still rooting for the characters and all the rest. And it is grounded in that subtext. Um, Towards the end of the show, I think it's maybe the third episode from the end, they introduce these, like, um, kind of rich characters who wear masks and they're kind of spectators of the violence. And at that point, it, it... that little bit is a bit silly because they're all so cartoonishly evil yeah. um, that it's, it kind of almost is the other extreme from what it was in those first episodes where it felt very grounded in something very, very real. Um, when you get these kind of swaggering characters who are basically clinking their glasses to their nefarious, terrible deeds, it does feel like it's pushing it in slightly into the realm of cartoon. I think overall it's a really good show and I think it genuinely has some real politics to grapple with embedded in it. um, But I think you could also watch that and be completely apolitical and totally ignore it, which I think is the problem that creators of fiction always have, no matter how. Marxist, you might want to be in your text. If there's like gunfighting and you know excitement, some people would just see the gunfighting and excitement.
0: Coming up, how Squid Game shines a light on South Korea's inequalities and in class divisions. Dr. Kevin Cawley is Senior Lecturer in Korean Studies at University College Cork. Kevin, the TV thriller Squid Game is continuing to break viewing records with people tuning in worldwide to learn about the fortunes of these 456 people. It's been described as a commentary on the class divisions and fractures of South Korean society. Do you think that's a fair description?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good broad entry point to discussing the show and I suppose that for Koreans it also evokes nostalgia you know this fantasy world of their childhood in which they get to reenact but then that's paired with these barbaric games so I think you know the, the TV series it's quite complex because on the one hand it's very moving and then at other times then it's obviously um, quite terrifying so I mean I've heard somewhere else it, it being described as you know a side guest show resonating with our time for me someone who's lived in in Korea and who's been coming here for 20 years. For me, it evokes the the sadistic irony of capitalism and South Korea's economic growth. So just this year, South Korea became designated as a uh, a developed country um, by the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. But at the same time, what we see represented in the show are all of these people struggling with debt. And linked with that is something that many people in the commentaries that I've seen internationally that they haven't focused on is the the very tragic suicide rate in South Korea. So South Korea has the highest rate of suicide in the OECD. It becomes even more shocking when you see that the age group of people aged between 10 to 39 that's the number one cause of death. Teenagers are um, you know committing suicide at a, at a high rate. and of course you know Irish listeners they they know that um, this is a huge issue in Ireland as well. but in Korea it's really you know I suppose exacerbated by the structure of society which really does um, cast people against each other in this extremely competitive manner that you know we don't we don't have that in our in Ireland. There is always competition. So, there's competition in terms of which universities you get into. Um, so, for example, the three main universities in, in Seoul, they're sort of grouped together as the, the Sky Universities. So, Seoul National University, Yonsei University, and Koryo University. So, uh, you know, you really have this struggle to get into these. So, in terms of then why is this challenging and how does this then contribute to uh, social inequality? Well, most people can't get into these universities unless their families spend a lot of money on private tuition. So you have all of these private academies, these hagwon. So, you know, I remember when I first went to Korea in the beginning, I was teaching English to kids and one day I had this, you know, nine-year-old kid, so Steve, and I was saying in the class, oh, I'm very busy these days, you know, these days, guys. And he said, oh, me too, teacher, I'm so busy. And I was like, you know, Steve, you're, you're eight or nine, you know, how can you be busy? <laughs> and he was like, oh, I, you know, I have to wake up at six o'clock in the morning. I go to a piano academy. Then I go to my regular school. Then I go to English academy in the afternoon. I go to a math academy and then I do taekwondo. And then on top of that, they have computer academies, art classes or whatever. And so during the summer holidays and the winter holidays, you know, we use the term holidays. In Korea, these kids will be going to more intensive classes, so more intensive training. So, you know, summer holidays, they could be going to these these hagwon, these, you know, these language institutions, for example, from nine o'clock in the morning until 6 p.m. And, you know, some of them stay open until 10 p.m. So, this puts huge burden on families to pay for all of this, you know, extra education, this extra tuition to hopefully guarantee their children's success in the future. So it's a society that's driven by education, and education is one of the factors that contributes to this debt and then also to this, if you like, division among the classes.
0: So Kevin, Juan Don York the director of Squid Came, who came up with the idea for the show in 2008 when his own family were struggling with debt. He has said the inequality in South Korea had to get worse before anyone would actually commission his show. Why do you think he said this and how much worse has it become in the last 10 years?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the issues is household debt in South Korea is, I mean, it's simply exorbitant. So I think in terms of GDP, household debt in Korea, is currently the highest in the world. So one of the reasons for that is in terms of rent. Many Koreans aren't able to buy apartments. And so they have these what are called um, junsei loans. So so junsei is this sort of deposit that you pay for an apartment. So, for example, you may have to pay about 50% of the value of the apartment to rent the apartment you may have to pay $300,000 if you live in Seoul to rent an apartment for two years. So during that two years, you don't pay rent. The owner of the the, the apartment will invest that money. And so then, if you like, they're reaping the, the interest of that or whatever. And so then after two years, you know, theoretically, you get your, your Say back or this huge deposit that you've paid. So, I mean, you know, the average price of apartments in Seoul is phenomenal. I was actually in a, in a friend of a friend's apartment last month And it cost around a million dollars. You know, it was a three bedroom, quite nice apartment in a huge apartment complex. So, you know, they all look, you know, exactly the same. So this puts a huge burden on, on people to be able to, you know, just to be able to rent. So you have people who are getting loans simply to pay deposits on their apartment. And then after that, you have, you know, your regular bills, etc. And then on top of that, if you have children, then you have all of these educational expenses, you know, that I mentioned mm. earlier. So that has simply accumulated. Things have gotten much worse in the past 10 years. And COVID has simply exasperated all of the, the, the flaws that already existed.
0: So your main research is on Korean philosophy and your last book, uh, it was called Religious and Philosophical Traditions of Korea. Is there anything from Korean philosophy, do you think, that might help us to understand Squid Game better or the reasons that the characters enter the games in the first place?
2: Okay, so, so Confucianism is a social philosophy that is in a way supposed to provide guidance to us as social beings so that we interact with each other in a in a more humane manner and the idea is that then if you're acting in a humane manner towards your family then when your family leaves the home it will go out and act in a humane way in, in society so then this idea of of humaneness spreads confucianism ex- is still extremely Important in Korea, especially in relation to the how people interact socially. So, so between friends, there should be trust or or faithfulness. But then also that you should respect um, the the elderly. And then that leads into another aspect of Confucianism, which is particularly emphasised in Korea, which is filial piety. So this idea that you should you know love and respect your parents and sort of like you know look after them when they're older in in a way to repay them for the huge sacrifices that they have made. So again, if you think of Korean parents, many of them have grown up, you know, in and around the time of the Korean War when Korea was so poor. Uh, the country has been catapulted into the the top echelons of economic advancement. Yet now these parents are, if you like, not being looked after because, you know, the kids aren't able to repay them or look after them because they're, they have so much debt, especially if they have their own children. So I suppose... This idea places a sort of a, an onus on the individuals, so they have this sense of of responsibility towards the other people in these sets of relationships. So for example, Kihun, one of the main characters, so number 456, you know, he sort of, in a sense, he's he failed his, his role as a as a husband and also as a father because he's not able to, you know, if you like, fulfill the needs of his wife and his daughter, especially financially. So I think some of these um, Confucian values, you know, they help to emphasize the, the added pressure um, and sense of responsibility, the onus on these these characters who are now playing for life or death.
0: It's clear that many of the characters in Squid Game symbolize the different fractures in Korean society, whether it's the North Korean defector, the embezzling banker, the Pakistani migrant, uh, the member of an evangelical megachurch, or our leading man who's a gambling addict. Are there any characters that you feel are missing from the show's lineup in order to create a fair representation of the divisions of Korean society?
2: Well, I mean, I suppose in terms of those who are, you know, disenchanted by um, modern Korean society there is you know not really any representation of the LGBTQ plus community um, except in the, the episode of the VIPs when you have this you know old you know oleaginous cretinous sordid westerner who is there trying to perform or to, to try and get the, the younger Korean actor to perform some sort of deed on him so in, in, in this sense you know it's represented or depicted in a very sordid and disgusting way Um, and you know that's often how many Koreans think of it you know there's a the evangelical church is extremely dominant in Korea and obviously they're anti-gay anti lots of things Mm -hmm. and so this group aren't represented so in a sense they've been if you like left out and the way that they have been represented or portrayed is via this westerner who comes in and I suppose in, in a way it almost reinforces this idea that, you know, there's something dirty or seedy about, um, about gay people. And, they, you know, they go off to, to a side room to perform illicit acts. And so it's this seediness that, you know, maybe the show could have um, dealt with that topic in, in a different way. It's extremely difficult for um, especially young members of the LGBT plus community in Korea to come out to their friends even, let alone their family. Um, so, you know, who knows, maybe in the next season there will be, you know, uh, a warmer representation of that.
0: That's a really interesting and good point to make. The 2019 film Parasite has been described as transcending borders and delivering an uncomfortable truth to the whole world. And it now appears Squid Game has done the same thing. What do you think is this TV programme's overarching message to people?
2: You know, I want to end on a positive note because i think um so much of it is you know related to these social issues and social injustices but just to say that you know the the main characters they generated their own karma so you know one guy he's involved in bribery and embezzlement or corruption the other guy is is a gambler so in a sense they've if you like you know they're they're responsible for their own downfalls but after watching the, the you know the whole series and you obviously you have these very graphic sometimes gratuitous scenes of violence but for me you know I really took away from it was this idea of you know of hope that people are ultimately um, good at, at, at the core and so hopefully um, that can bring about some change that we or in the, in the context of, of Korea that people reach out maybe a bit more to those who are vulnerable and to those who are in need.
0: Kevin thanks so much for your time. That's all for today. My thanks again to our guests, Patrick Frayne and Dr. Kevin Cawley, for their brilliant insights into the phenomenon that is Squid Game. In the news, we'll be back on Tuesday.